Hi, Pastor Rob here from City East Church and MTL Ministries. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians, it's the Truth, Judgment and Eternity series, and we're working through the book of Ephesians, and we're up to chapter 2. Okay, Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at those in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, Lord. We give you praise, Father. We thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for the book of Ephesians and uh, just the way it's written and and the beauty of the words and the hope that it it gives us all. And Lord, I just pray that as we we delve into Ephesians 2 uh, verses 1 to 10, I just pray that you will help us to uh, go deeper and get a a full understanding of what the Spirit is saying through this book and uh, what he wants to say to us today from this book because Lord we could preach on that section for for uh, many sessions but Lord we just we want to know what the Spirit is saying to us today through this through this book and so I pray that my research and the work that I've done will be adequate to uh, impart that today I pray that you help me to say only what the Spirit is saying and not what I believe should be said but only what you believe should be said Lord and I pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. It says in Ephesians between 2, 1 to 10, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. You know, if you think about it, is there a king on earth that would share his throne with someone else? Is there a king that you know of that has said, okay, what about you come up here and you come up here and sit with me on my throne and share the throne? You know, in the book of Daniel, you hear that Daniel won uh, Nebuchadnezzar's heart and Daniel was given rule. But even Nebuchadnezzar said, the only one who's above you is me. But he did share his throne in a degree to Daniel. And in that sense, we those that overcome this life and uh, are welcomed to a throne beside God and there's many already on thrones beside God but there will be many to come as well in that sense we'll rule with Jesus we'll be ruling with Jesus and he'll be giving us authority to rule from his throne but the only one who will be above us will be Jesus and of course God the Father who are one anyway so 
But that is a wonderful thing to know that God wants to share his throne. He's not going to be a dictator, in other words. He doesn't want to dictate. He wants to have a council of men who will rule with him. And that's unlike any government or, or ruling or um, kingdom on earth in history. No other kingdom will be set up in that way. So that's an amazing thing, and it's a revelation that comes from Ephesians. Okay, from chapter 1, if you remember, we uh, looked at that we had blessings from the Father. I got this uh, layout from a Chuck Missler screen, which I thought was brilliant because it just encapsulated the whole chapter. It's very well done. So we, the, it started with blessings from the Father. He has chosen us in verses 3 to 4. He has adopted us. He has accepted us. The Father chose us, adopted us, and accepted us. Isn't that wonderful? Blessings from the Son. He has redeemed us in verses 7a. He has forgiven us, 7b. He has revealed God's will to us in verses 8 to 10. And he has made us an inheritance, verses 11 to 12. Remember, we're his inheritance. He's not just our inheritance, which he is, and the kingdom of God is our inheritance, but we're his inheritance. So doesn't that make you want to do right by the Lord? You know, where is inheritance? Let's be the best inheritance we can give him. Blessings from the Spirit. He has sealed us in verse 13, and he has given us a down payment in verse 14. What's that down payment? Anyone remember? He's a deposit. The Holy Spirit was deposited in us. He's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So until we are redeemed and those who are God's possession, which we are, we're God's possession. Prayer for understanding as well. If you remember, Paul made a beautiful prayer from 115 uh, to 23. He says that God may give you spiritual understanding in verses 17 to 18 and that you might know the hope of his calling, that we would know the hope. Who knows the hope of our calling? We've got to keep reminding ourselves of it. That's why we have church. We've got to keep reminding ourselves of the hope of his calling. That you might know the riches of his inheritance. That you might know the riches of his inheritance and that you might know his power. These are all things that Paul prayed for, that we might know these things, that we might get an understanding of them. So I think that's um, really important. That was chapter 1. It was an amazing chapter. So all things, if you remember this, all things are under Christ. He is on the throne of God with all things under his feet. Who believes that? He's on the throne of God, but he yet awaits a time when the world will be subject to him. But the Son will be subject to no one but to the Father, and God will be all in all. So at that time, when the world becomes subject to Jesus, at that time, he will be subject to no one except the Father in heaven. Now, is that time now? Is the world subject to Jesus right now? No. The world is under the feet of Jesus in the sense that he's above it but the world is not subject to him. And remember we talked about that he is far above. Do you remember we were talking about that? That the power is like the work of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all. The NIV says rule and authority, power and dominion. Uh, I actually went in and got the four Greek words that are used there, and the actual translation directly is he's far above principalities which is the greek word axi which refers to jesus being above anything that ever was created from the beginning of all time so anything that has ever been created jesus is far above that but then we break down what those that is into three various um greek words which is uh, uh, one of those is authority exousia 
which is delegated empowerment in the sense of government, religious, or any other kind of position. So that is, Jesus is above presidents, he's above kings, he's above prime ministers, he's above the high priest, he's above the pope, he's above all of these uh, authorities on this planet. He is also far above all power, uh, dynamios, which is where we get the word dynamite. Jesus is above all combined power in the universe, nuclear power, electrical power, atomic power. There is no power in the universe that is greater than Jesus. As we said, we can't take Jesus out with a nuclear warhead. You know, we can't burn Jesus. We can't hurt him with electricity or any kind of thing. He created it all, but it's below him. And also, it tells us that he's a far above all dominion, Kyriatidos, which is divine or angelic lordship. Jesus is above every celestial being in the heavens. There is not an angel in heaven who will not bow to Jesus Christ. So all the angels, all the um, spiritual beings in the universe are below Jesus. Jesus is above them all. Isn't that good to know? That's the God we serve. We don't serve a God in any of these lower realms, which is where pretty well every other religion on earth and every other uh, system of thought on earth is in the lower realms. But we worship the God above all of those realms in the, in the high realms. So an outline of chapter 2, 1 to 10, which we're going to do today, and this again I just got from a Chuck Missler overview. The first verses are 1 to 3, which is what we were before Christ. So before Christ, what were we like? What was our state? Verses 4 to 9 uh, tells us what God did in relation to that. And verse 10 tells us what we are now, who we are in Christ now. And I think that's important to know. So if we get an overview of chapter 1, it emphasizes our possession, that, we, that uh, what we have in Christ, our possessions, as well as uh, Christ's possession in us. That's chapter 1, and chapter 2 emphasizes our position. So it tells us who we are, our position, our authority, and where we go from here, you know, and, and uh, this, what we can walk in now, the calling on our life. Before Christ, Ephesians 2.1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now I'm taking this from the New King James. I just want to note that, see it says, And you he made alive. Uh, who were dead in trespasses and sins. The NIV, the ESV, and the New American Standard, so the ESV is the English Standard Version, the NIV is the New International, um, and the NAS is the New American Standard, and others do not have the passage, and you, you he made alive. This phrase does not appear in the Greek. It has been added by the King James translators because the verb appears a few verses down, and it's put here by reference for clarity. And I think that's, that's an actually a good addition because it's actually said just a few verses later but it's placed there just for the purpose of clarity because if without it says we were dead in our transgressions and sins which we used to live when we followed the evil ways of this world and so on but the king james would just say and you he made alive so we've got to remember we've been made alive now that we're in christ we're made alive but we were dead in transgressions and sins before we accepted christ you know what i mean now does that mean if we've been accepted in the christ We've been cleansed of our sins and we've been forgiven for our sins. Now, does that mean that we don't sin? It doesn't mean that we don't sin. We still do sin, but we've got to understand that we shouldn't make a habit of sinning. We shouldn't live a lifestyle of sin. If we're saved, if we're truly saved, you'll find that people who are truly saved, they won't be womanizing all the time. They won't be drunkards. They won't be drinking uh, every weekend and getting plastered. 
they won't live that lifestyle any longer. They'll turn from that. It doesn't mean that they won't have, uh, you know, you won't have the occasions where you sort of uh, slip up. But it, it doesn't mean, you, it means that you stop living that lifestyle. But anyway, it says here, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So Paul very graphically emphasizes just what we were before Christ. We were dead without eternal life in trespasses and sins, in our trespasses and sins. Those that don't know Jesus are dead. You could say walking dead. So the majority of people out in the world today are walking dead people. Because if they were killed in a car crash or killed suddenly by some crazy sickness or whatever, they would go straight to hell without Christ. Because as long as they have rejected Christ, they re rejected life. Remember he said, I am the resurrection and the life. So if he's the resurrection and he's the life and you don't have him, you're as good as dead. So that's why how important Jesus is. We need to honor him. And we need to keep looking to him daily because now we're his possession. We don't own ourselves anymore. We've given up our ownership because when we owned ourselves, we were in sin, weren't we? But now we've given our hearts to Jesus. Now he owns us. So we're his possession. Therefore, we've got to live according to his word. And that's, that's the paramount part of Christianity. And you know what? It's the best life you can live. You can't lead a better life. How many people have you read stories about who live this crazy life that the world popularizes? They, they have money, they have fame, they have all the drugs you can get, they have all the women or the men or whatever, you know, whichever sex. They have all of that. They have all of what the world makes popular and yet you find that they're the most miserable people on earth. You know, they contemplate suicide regularly. A lot of them die young. There's a huge amount of the most popular uh, music uh, musicians of the past have died young. So what the world makes popular, what seems like a Christian would miss out on, they would have to give up to be a true Christian, turns out that those are the very things that make these people want to commit suicide. So what are we missing? We're missing out on death. And I think that's a good thing, to miss out on death. Leave death. You don't want to go into that, that realm. Live the holy Christian life now, and then you live the life that was designed for you. You live according to God's design. He made you. I think he knows what's best to make your life the most wonderful life. You know, I used to go out and party and stuff, but I, I you know, years ago. But now, just like, for example, just going out with Bill and sitting down talking with some guys, and we talk about God all night long. That, to me, is far more enjoyable, far more stimulating far more exciting than just going around, standing around, drinking, looking at chicks. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would much rather sit down and just talk about God and theology and, and apologetics and the wonder and the mystery of all creation. I think that's, that's the life. We were dead because we were without Christ and bound by sin nature. When we are without Christ, we're dead because we're bound by sin. We're bound by the sin nature. Ephesians 2, 1-2, I'm going to include what we just read. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Matthew Henry said, A state of sin is a state of conformity to this world. When you live in sin, when you follow sin, when you walk in sin, when you deliberately go out to commit sin, you're in conformity to the world and that that's 
what Matthew Henry is saying. By our nature, we are bond slaves to sin. And we once walked to please that sin nature, but by doing so, we were obeying the prince and power of the air, as the word here says, according to the prince and power of the air. Now, that's an interesting verse. I'll tell you why. Satan controls the air. Think about it. The airwaves of this planet are filled with transmissions, aren't they? When you turn on the TV, how is the signal received from your house? By the aerial on the roof. The aerial picks up something from the air, doesn't it? When you uh, turn on the radio, you're receiving signals from the air. Music, internet, entertainment, movies, TV shows. The Word of God tells us that Satan controls all these airwave transmissions. So everything that's getting transmitted around the earth is transmitted by Satan. And you think about it. That means Satan controls the masses and it, to think by controlling the airways. He controls what they think. And the, the TV is the most influential box on the planet, isn't it? You put one in the living room, the family sits around it, and then, you know, for however many hours a day, they just get fed whatever the programmers of the TV want to feed the people. And those people will, without even realising it, will naturally believe what they see on TV. They won't question it. And now we've got the TV's cousin, you know, with the internet. And now people believe pretty well whatever they see on the internet. And that's why it's good as Christians. We've got to fill the internet with Christian stuff. Get stuff on there that helps them to come to the truth. The spirit of disobedience. Ephesians 2b-3 says, The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as the others were. We were by nature children of wrath. Very clearly, Paul reveals that mankind has been handed over to a spirit of disobedience. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. That spirit works disobedience in them. Someone who is in rebellion against Christ is not a free thinker. You know, people will say, you know, yeah, you're okay, you're a Christian, but I'm a free thinker. I just think freely here. They're not free thinking freely. They're not liberated. Some people think they live in a liberated state. They're not liberated. But they are bound by sin and mastered by a spirit of disobedience. They're bond slaves to sin. They're bond slaves to the spirit who controls the way they think. Remember, we all once were bound by the spirit. Put up your hand if you've been bound by that spirit of disobedience. Remember, we all once were bound by the Spirit and can easily be entangled again. It's very easy to fall back into the world, fall back into disobedience. It's one of the easiest things. And, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've fallen back a few times throughout my Christianity. And my early Christianity was, I think, a bit of a rebellion, you know. But it's all the process God used to... to take me along the road but the more further along we get the more we realize hey we really got to hold on to this we got to walk in obedience to God but if we fall again into disobedience we would come under the wrath of God according to the scripture because it says the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and we're by nature children of wrath so if you're a son of disobedience or a daughter of disobedience, you are a child of wrath, coming under the wrath of God. If we step out from under the saving grace of the Lord, uh, the blood of Christ, then we can once again come under the wrath of God. 
Remember, you're saved because you stay under the blood in the sense that you stay under Christ. If you step out from accepting Christ, if you step out from that, you're no longer under the blood and you're no longer saved. So even a Christian can walk away from the truth. Some people say, well, they weren't ever truly Christian. I don't believe that. I believe that they can they can be under the blood or they can step out of the blood. Just like um, uh, in... Uh, the, during the Passover in, in Egypt, the, as long as the Egyptians stayed in their houses under the blood that was placed on, their, on the lentils of, those, of their homes, they were protected. It wasn't because they were Jewish that they were protected. It was because they were under the blood. But if they had stepped out of the house when the destroying angel went past, they would have been destroyed just like anybody else. So it's because we're under the blood that we're saved. Ephesians 2, 4-5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Did you get that? Jesus loved us when we were dead in sin. You think about it. Just say there's a person that really dislikes you and has done nothing but hurt you and you know treat you badly. Um, would you die for that person? Would you be prepared to lay your life down for someone that hates you and is in rebellion towards you? Would you know that's, that's the mercy of our God, that while we were disobedient, while we were sinners, while we uh, lived this terrible, sinful life of, of um, rebellion against God, Jesus died for us at that point. Because he realized that there's only one way to save this lot. And it's not because they're going to do good. It's because I'm going to lay my life down for them. Our God had to come up with a solution to this deeply spiritual problem in mankind and in his mercy and love he sent his beloved son to solve the dilemma. Romans 5.6 says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still powerless, while we were unable to do anything to save ourselves, Christ died for us. And it could have been 2,000 years ago or it could have been yesterday. It was the perfect time. But it was 2,000 years ago. And we just look back, we say, thank you, Jesus. And that blood covers us and atones us today as if it happened today. Without Christ, we were powerless to overcome sin and evil. We were as dead men. But now in Christ, we have eternal life because of his sacrifice on the cross. And we have been made alive in Christ as a result. And we were raised with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says, and and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are on a throne with Christ in that sense. And Rick Joyner said, the way we counter the evil prince of the air is for us to be raised above him and seated with Christ. See, if, if Satan controls the airwaves, we've got to get above the airwaves. And who's above the airwaves? Jesus, because he's above all. He's high above, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And every title that can be given. To be raised with Christ, and this is the way you might be saying, how do I get raised up there to be with Christ? It says, get the mind of Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Think about Christ. Think of Christ. Read the Bible. Make your mind think the same way as the Bible is. I, I always uh, use the analogy of washing your mind with the word. In the sense, if your thoughts aren't giving you good thoughts, you know what I mean? Sometimes you can wake up and you can have really bad thoughts. And you can feel bad and you can think badly all day. Who's had that experience? Well, that's a sign that you have to read the Bible. Wash your mind in the words of the Bible. 
trigger them, make them think correctly, because the Bible will help you to think correctly. And meditate upon noble themes. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I really believe, and I know for myself, that we, as like when people come over, we've got to be careful what we talk about. It's so easy to slip into talking about others and talking about bad situations and bad things, and, and we can go from topic to topic and all of them quite negative, you know. And we've got to really control that. We've got to start thinking about whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is honest, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is right. We've got to think on these things. And also we've got to watch and pray if we want to be raised with Christ. We've got to, uh, the Bible says in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. If you watch and pray, if you, you, if you keep your watching for God in the sense of um, uh, reading the Bible and, and assessing the times and so on, and also if you pray a lot, there's a good chance that you won't fall into sin and you won't be tempted to sin. And so that's a really good scripture to keep, keep thinking of. Riches of his grace. Ephesians 2.7 says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, what a promise. If you think about it, in ages to come, Jesus will be showing the exceeding riches of his grace expressed in kindness towards us. The exceeding riches of his grace. Now, that can mean so many things. But we can see it as he, he wants to give us good things. And he's not just talking about this life. He will bless us in this life. He will look after us in this life. But the life, the true life to come where his exceeding riches will be expressed in their fullness will be in heaven. When we get to heaven and he just shows and he says, enter into my rest and this is for you. This is your inheritance. And you walk in there and you just gobsmacked. Like, look at this place. This is unbelievable. And if you read this word, what this means is that we have eternal life in him. He is our eternal life. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is our eternal life. And his joy will be to pour forth blessings beyond imagination upon those who love him. I can't wait for heaven. One thing, and Joe Schimmel pointed this out, is that you, I think the, we have 3,000 taste buds. doesn't sound like enough for, you know, like when you've got atoms and molecules and there's millions of those. There's plenty when you go to series. There's plenty when you go to series. When you eat when you eat a really good meal, like we love series Thai Kitchen, a little promo. Yeah. You owe me, King. Um, <laughs> when uh, when you eat something like that, it's it's just like I call it a circus in the mouth. It's just there's so many flavours going on and you just it's incredible. Now Joe Schimmel said you imagine when your senses are heightened and you're in heaven and your three thousand taste buds become thirty thousand taste buds and you eat something there and the food there is so much better than here, you imagine the joy, exceeding joy to eat in heaven. Especially knowing you can't get fat. So you can eat Oh, mate, just eat. He will give us the joy of eating for the joy of eating. He'll bless us, eat, because it is the most wonderful thing you can do, one of the most wonderful things you can do. And your smell will increase there, and the smells in heaven, they say heaven is glorious. It smells so beautiful, they can't so red. 
So all this, all your senses will be heightened again just by smelling beautiful flowers that smells you've never smelled here on earth. Isn't it? Isn't smell a beautiful sense? Yeah. It's a wonderful thing to go in. Oh, that smells so good. I don't want to leave here now. It can be a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, especially on this planet. Yeah. Smell and uh, taste, and that's just two of the senses. What's another sense? Hearing. Hearing. They say in heaven, you just music is continually played in heaven the atmosphere is is filled with the most beautiful heavenly voices and you don't hear you know the boom boom cars driving along the road and and yeah and terrible you don't hear screams and or anything like that you just hear the beauties of heaven uh, in music what else there's also sights the visual aspect of heaven is overwhelming because uh, the most beautiful things to see People that have been there, you know, Christianity, and I've said this before, Christianity is one of the only religions, and I think the only, that boasts of so many people having heavenly encounters and meeting Jesus in heaven. Islam, as from Bill's research, couldn't find one person that had a heavenly encounter from the religion of Islam, meeting with Muhammad in heavenly places. But multitudes, multitudes, thousands upon thousands of Christians will confess and, and say, testify that they've met with Jesus in heaven. Many of them little children uh, and some of them from atheist families who have never had any experience with Christianity or walking into a church or anything. And suddenly they're in heaven and they're meeting with Jesus and then they're sent back and they draw Jesus and, and so on, get given gifts of art. And then the parents turn to Christ, you know, through their child. You know, so that just proves uh, um, that we have a faith that is has been evidenced, but in many different aspects. But um, so heaven is a wonderful place, and that is what Paul's talking about here. And then, if you read in one Corinthians two nine, it says, "However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. No ear, no eye." No mind has conceived. You, it's unfathomable. For me to describe it, it's like me trying to describe the Swiss Alps to you and give you a picture in your mind just by talking about it. But it's not until you go there that you see the majestic wonder of the Swiss Alps and you go, wow, this is breathtaking. You know, So no mind has conceived what heaven is like. Uh, except, of course, those that went there and come back and report. But again, you only get a report. It's not until we get there. So, guys, we're going there. We're all going there. Just make sure, whatever you do, that you don't turn away from the faith that you now profess. Moving right along slowly. Salvation by grace. Now, this is important. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of, of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man or anyone should boast. So for, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. So it is a gift of God, not of works. You don't work for, to receive salvation. It is by faith that you receive salvation. And Charles Binton said, In all of the diversity of religious beliefs, there are only two essential types of belief. Only two. Works and grace. There seems to be many differences between the world religions, uh, but they are all essentially the same. They all centre around human works. All involve human beings accomplishing a task or a set of tasks to achieve a goal and receive a reward. The tasks may be different, the goal may have different names, and the reward may be called many things, heaven, paradise, nirvana. 
but the principle underlying are all of the all of them is the same salvation righteousness oneness with the infinite perfect nothingness or whatever is the term in a particular religion and it is all earned by what one does so all of these world religions you receive salvation by earning it and that is why in, in many of the religions uh, the practitioners don't even know if they're saved but we have a faith where it's not according to what we've done that we get saved we get saved by what Christ has done and our responsibility is to stay in Christ simply stay in him uh, stay the course do you know what I'm saying don't step away from Christ stay with him until you die and you receive salvation there is a little bit more to that but that's salvation that's the essence of salvation and Charles Binton uh, gives us a rundown of salvation by grace. The first is salvation is 100% a work of God. 100%. Because of our bondage to sin and rebellion, we are unable to do anything meriting God's favour. The Old Testament says that uh, our works are as filthy rags before a holy God. The best things that can be done on earth, the best people who could do the best possible work on earth, before God, that work is a filthy rag. That's how he sees it. That work is not good enough to merit salvation. It's only by the sacrificial blood of a sinless being who did everything that needs to be done according to God's will for salvation to be achieved. So it's by believing in him and him alone. And why, does, why is that? Because it says so that no one can boast. You imagine if you get to heaven and Muhammad's there and Krishna's there and Buddha and the Bab, and Baha Yula, and they're all there, and guess what they're walking around doing? They're walking around saying, you know how good I was on earth, I did this, I did this, I did this, and I'm here because I deserve to be here because I'm such a good person. And then God's in the background just standing back there going, hmm, yeah, I suppose. But it's not like that. They're, they're, no one gets there because of what they did. No one gets there because of what they did. Yeah, they get there because of what Christ did and what he did alone. So that takes a lot of stress off you in, in the sense of that if I don't do this, I'm going to lose my salvation. If I don't do this, I'm going to lose my salvation. The only way you can lose your salvation is by rejecting Christ, turning your back on Christ, cursing Christ, walking away from Christ. And that's, uh, we've got to remember that. God reaches down to save people. He conceived the plan. He sent his son to accomplish the plan. He does 100% of the work. So when we experience what the Bible calls the new birth, uh, and there's the scriptures, John 3, verses 3 to 8, we are then saved. So we are saved when we have been born again. So when we are saved, we pass from death to life. And as a part of the gift of salvation, we become adopted children of God. We get adopted into his family. When we sin, God deals with us as a father to a child. And God's grace and actions are the determining factor in our salvation, even to include his working in our lives to develop a lifestyle consistent with salvation. So on that, when we are saved by grace, not by works, because if anyone would boast, if you go to heaven and there's all these boasters in heaven, then God's not getting the glory, they're getting the glory. But the glory goes to God, because he did what only God could do. And he's not getting the glory because he, he refuses to allow people's good works to receive salvation. That's not why. He's getting the glory because he deserves it. He created all that is. And he deserves the glory. And if he doesn't get the glory, who should get it? Not his creation. Only God should, deserves to get the full glory. Does that make sense?
Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. This means he is doing the work in us. We just have to be obedient to seek him, pray, study the word and fulfill the commission and he will do it in us. He does it. Isn't that nice to know? That you don't have to think, how do I do this? You just got to allow him to do the work in, in you. You just have to be obedient to seeking him, obedient to prayer to him, to reading the word and to be prepared to go when he tells you to go or to stay when he tells you to stay and so on. But being prepared at all times to to do his will. Here is another mystery of mankind that's revealed. We were created to do good works. That's what you're created for. Your whole reason for being was to do the works of God. Because the Bible tells us we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We weren't created in Christ Jesus to do no good works. We are created to do good works. And not just any old good works, but the ones which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So not just good things. Like you can go out and do good things. Who does good things? Yeah? I do good things. You do good things? Yeah. See a little old lady hop across the road? You do good things. But what about the things that God calls good or the things that the good things that God's predestined for you to do? They're the things that you've got to do and he, he calls us to do them. God has prepared the works and the ministry of the believer. Our responsibility to him is to find out what those works are, what is entailed in our personal ministry our personal mandate from him. We've got to find out what they are, and that should be our objective, is to know what, Lord, am I to do for you? You created me for good works. What are those good works? How do I do the good works that you created me to do? What am I meant to do? How do I do them? Like in the sense of, you know, I know I should be telling people about Jesus, but how do I tell them about Jesus when people are so rejecting of the truth? How do I reach someone with the gospel? And Joe Schimble talks about that, and even uh, Mike Webb was talking about that we just got to befriend people, but make clear to them that we are Christian, so that they know that the friend that they've formed are f friends in Christ. And as that friendship flourishes, you know, then there's more and more opportunities. Without even trying, you'll find yourself telling them about the faith, you know? And I believe the reason you tell them about the faith is simply because of your love and concern for them can get that great that you don't want to lose them. The worst thing would be to lose them because they, they, they live a life of, of rebellion towards God. So you tell them about God gently and you try to bring them to an understanding of God that they obviously didn't have before that. So in conclusion, are you seated in the heavenlies? That's a question I want to ask you today. Are you seated in the heavenlies? Are we all resisting the sin that so easily entangles us? Are we resisting it? Because it's easy to fall back into it. So we've just got to keep asking ourselves that. I'm not saying, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. Maybe Matthew, but no one else. We must abide in Christ to live with the mind of Christ. Above all the sin and confusion in this world, we must ab abide in him. We must live in him if we can live above the sin and confusion of this world. We abide in Christ as we pray, as we seek him, as we study the word of God. Make each day a day dedicated to the glory of God and to the consecration of your life to God in holiness. Wake up each morning and say, Lord, this is the day the Lord has made.
and we're going to rejoice, we're going to be glad in it, we're going to give you honor, we're going to give you glory, we're going to praise you. I'm going to dedicate this day to you. And from that moment forward, you walk in him. And if you make that the protocol of every day of your life, you've got a good chance to be abiding in him and walking in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for this word today. And I pray that, Lord, it, it came and uh, in, a, in a way that would be received by everyone here. And I pray that you really do a, a work in us and that this word has had an impact on us and that we will be changed and transformed uh, as, a re- as a result of it. I pray that by your Spirit, Lord, that you're going to be with each and every one of us um, this week and, and move us to live with you, abide in you, walk in you, and uh, abide and, and be seated in the heavenlies, that we would stay uh, in that place in you each and every day so that we'll not fall in, uh, into temptation, that we'll not fall into sin, and uh, and you know get outside of your will, but Lord, that you that we will walk according to the good works that you've designed for us to do. That you'll help us to achieve that and walk in all of those things, because Lord, we just want to serve you and uh, please you with our life. So help us to do this in your wonderful name, and we give you glory and honor and uh, and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.